and welcome to another edition of the Rethinking Aloud podcast, coming to you from the Diocese of Leicester, encouraging thinking and reflection on faith, life and theology. And today we're going to be talking about race, about unconscious bias, about racism uh, and about what our faith has to say about some of the issues that have been brought into sharp focus lately by the tragic death of George Floyd in America um, that have perhaps been raised in our consciousness by the Black Lives Matter movement and protests on both sides of the Atlantic. How do we as Christians evaluate what's happening at the moment? How do we combat injustice? What do we believe about people and their worth? How do we face up to our history? Uh, where do we find hope? So much to be talking about. And I'm joined today by the Reverend Canon Lucer Ngoy, Anglican priest and BAME enabler for the Diocese of Leicester, and Suzanne Hansen, uh, intercultural ministry enabler, again, here in Leicester Diocese. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Well, we're going to um, talk theologically, um, historically and sociologically, I suspect, in a bit. Um, but I hope you won't mind if we begin, um, both of you, with the human bit, with the personal angle. Um, you, you're both um, living in the UK, um, both um, BAME heritage. Can I just ask, how did the death of George Floyd, um, someone who you'd obviously never met, all those miles away in a different context, different country, different continent, how did that affect you? You know, what what feelings did it engender, uh, if I can ask, and bring to the surface in you guys? Well, uh, if I may start, um, I remember a few days, I think it's two or three days after uh, George Floyd was murdered, I was talking to a friend of mine who, in fact, lives in St. Paul's, which is the twin city to Minneapolis. And she was sharing me uh, the story of her nine-year-old boy, uh, a nine-year-old son, who came to her in tears uh, and asking her, Mom, is it my fault that I was born black? Uh, I guess... In the question, there was a protest, there was a, a lament, uh, but also the recognition that uh, living as a black boy in a world that is said to serve the interest of white people, uh, in many ways, he was carrying uh, a dreadful legacy that he had to live with. And in many ways, uh, black people in the States and around the world identified quite uh, closely with what happened to George Floyd. Uh, not because we have ourselves uh, uh, received the exact violence, but because the experience of exclusion, of oppression, uh, of violence, sometimes physical, sometimes um, uh, in, in, in words, is one that we go through on a daily basis. But it's also the recognition that uh, we live in a world that is racialized and we are racialized uh, subjects and therefore uh, thrown in a dreadful fellowship uh, with uh, millions of black bodies around the world uh, and mindful of the fact that we live in societies that uh, are oppressive and repressive to uh, those who share our identity and our stories. And so when George Floyd, uh, Tamirise, uh, Omad uh, Aubrey, Stephen Lawrence, uh, Samira Adamu, and you could carry on that litany of lives uh, when their lives uh, are uh, brutally uh, ended. We feel a connection, we feel uh, a, a fellowship, and we feel the pain, uh, and we read ourselves into their stories as well. And so in many ways, uh, George Floyd is not just an anonymous life dying uh, all those miles away. 
it is something of our own experience that is being rehearsed publicly. That's really helpful. And that, that whole, I mean, did you say the little boy was nine years old? He was. Yeah, I mean, that that just kind of tugs at the heartstrings of anyone, doesn't it? Imagining you know, someone asking their mother a question like that at that age and already feeling the weight of, of so many things. Um, Suzanne, how about you? Did What kind of um, effect or personal impact did you, did you experience as, as a result of all that was um, of that period of time and the George Floyd uh, death, etc.? Well, I think for me, my first response was one of absolute frustration. It made me think about um, when I first saw those pictures back in the 1990s of Rodney King. I remember watching that incident on television um, of this brutal encounter of this individual being hit and kicked and stamped on. And I just thought to myself, enough is enough. How much longer are people going to have to endure such incredible brutality? Uh, How much longer are African-Americans going to have to endure a criminal justice system, which is not predicated upon justice and equality? Um, And I think that kind of spilled into anger, really, at the lack of action the lack of progress which has been made in this area and questioning what needs to be done now to truly affect real change where people's lives do matter, where we have a criminal justice system which is respectful of all people irrespective of their hue or their tone. Um, What does it take to actually effectively make change occur rather than it be something we just talk about and and wish for right, and we'll we'll come i'm sure we'll come back to some of those questions as the conversation develops um I, i'm also pretty sure that we won't have all the answers but I, I think we'll pick up with some of that stuff and thank you both um for for being willing to share on that slightly more personal uh, level uh, that's really good of you um Hard to know really where to to move the question or the conversation on or, or where to start uh, what's left of our conversation, but I guess it might be useful to start with definitions. Uh, we often uh, hear words bandied around, we even bandy words around ourselves. Uh, but how would you define um, race, uh, and how might you define racism? Um, don't know who wants to ha- have a stab at that. I'm quite happy to uh, offer my understanding of race and and racism. I think it's quite important for us to understand um, where these terms have come from um, so that we're kind of all on the same song sheet. Race is very much uh, an evolving social idea. This is not something which is fixed in stone but has evolved over time. Um, And as such, from a sociological point of view, you'll often hear sociologists referring to race as being a social construct. So what what does that actually mean? Um, Well, let me give you an example. The term white was introduced in the 1600s. Prior to that, it wasn't something which was in uh, common uh, circulation People were referred to on the basis of their 
nationality rather than an abstract concept such as being white. We can see something similar in terms of the way in which Africans have been described during um, the period of the slave trade, the uh, movement from Africa to the Americas, Africans ceased to be Africans and became Negroes. So there's this change in the terminology and what is implied by that, uh, which begins and evolves and gathers momentum over time. We have to come right up to the 1900s, whereby as a result of uh, social Darwinian thinking, and by that I mean this notion that not only animals evolve, but cultures and people evolve, that we get this pseudo-scientific um, framework for classifying people into racial categories. Um, and so as a result of that, this notion of race is one which was it is um, imbued with social, political um, underpinnings to organise people into a social hierarchy. And it's that social hierarchy which a lot of people are referring to when they use the term race or uh, sorry, racism or institutional racism. The social hierarchy which privileges some on the basis of their skin colour and denies those benefits, denies those advantages to others on the basis of their skin colour. That's really useful. Thank you. Uh, that's very clear. Uh, Lucy, anything that you would want to bring in alongside that or expand on there? Or are you happy with? Well, I, I think Suzanne has given us a really comprehensive definition uh, and, and, and just uh, highlight the fact that uh, there is no biological grounding uh, on uh, our concept and our understanding of race. Uh, all of that is uh, so, uh, a social and a political construct. Uh, and perhaps highlighting uh, also that uh, the church has been complicit in um, in furthering uh, the the ideology uh, and and somehow promoting uh, the notion of whiteness as as superior in offering a theological uh, framework to to justify uh, I guess what many of us uh, refer to uh, as white supremacy as the ideology that uh, undergirds uh, the uh, development and expression of racism. Uh, as early as it started and, and still defines and, and impact the lives of many today. Right. And I mean, that's interesting talking. I've already heard in some of the answers you two guys have given just to the first couple of um, sort of little questions that we've had or whatever, uh, some of the language of white supremacy, um, heard the language of privilege. We hear a lot of talk these days, don't we, about institutional or systemic racism um, yeah, what's all that about? And where does the idea of white privilege fit into that? Well, I think that um, what we need to do is understand the distinction between being prejudiced, discrimination, and then this concept of structural um, racism. So to be prejudiced, an individual can be prejudiced, and it's something which all of us um, have, we have prejudices, they are basically attitudes, thoughts, which are based on preconceived ideas or judgments about um, an individual or group. And they are projected onto the entire social group. Um, they are often 
in the main based upon stereotypes and generalizations. When we act on those prejudices, it turns into discrimination. Um, so if we fail to um, recognize that just because a person is of a particular ethnic origin, they may they may not all be criminals. They may not all have a, um, a liking for a particular type of food or sound of, uh, uh, type of music. Um, if we act on it, it becomes discrimination. And this is the dis- it's a very important distinction to be, to make between discrimination and therefore what we call institutional or systematic racism. When we take the group as a group, that social group, their prejudices, and we enshrine them in law, or we have the backing of institutions which then act on that basis, um, then we have what we call a system of racism. Uh, That system is then working independently of the individual attitudes and behaviours of that social group. So it's possible that a person, a white person, may not have those racist tendencies, but that institution of racism um, will still permeate throughout society because it has been enshrined in institutions and within the legal framework. So let's move on now and talk about a little bit in a little bit more detail what we mean by the privilege. So the privileges is that for those at the top of the social hierarchy, they will um, perhaps unbeknown to themselves benefit from a whole range of advantages which they don't have to work for. It's coming to them irrespective of, in a sense, their ethnic origin. In contrast, there are those who are perceived to be at the bottom of the social hierarchy and they don't receive access to those privileges. So what might those privileges be? Well, as we've just spoken about at the start of our conversation today, it could be equal access to fair treatment under the law, the criminal justice system, that if you're going to, if a situation has occurred and the police are involved, that you're going to be treated with dignity, with respect. Um, So that would be a very good example of one of those privileges. But it extends beyond the criminal justice system. We can think about um, education um, within the UK context. Um, If a situation has happened in a school and it requires some form of discipline or a response to it, a young black male is far more likely to be suspended or expelled in contrast to those of another social and economic uh, group. So there are a whole range of privileges which those at the top of the social hierarchy can just expect to receive, to receive, and those who don't share the same um, ethnic origin um, may well find themselves completely excluded from. And if if I may add, it's really interesting to see how Suzanne has uh, highlighted in in what she was saying, uh, the the philosophical uh, undergirding uh, of uh, of racism and and somehow how the structure, the, uh, the... uh, architecture of, of racism relies on uh, ideas that have penetrated uh, 
have informed and continue to inform the way in which we we set up our societies and our structures. Uh, and and I guess as we try to tackle uh, the impact of racism and racism itself, uh, we ought to unearth some of those and do a deconstruction of the philosophical uh, undergirdings of um, uh, of societies that we've built. And perhaps worth to say also that uh, you have a number of, of, of white people, and I've, I have had a number of white people who uh, objected to the concept of, of white privilege by saying that uh, they didn't consider their lives being privileged, uh, either because of socioeconomic factors or uh, a variety of other factors. Uh, but what I've often uh, argued with them is that at no point their whiteness was a factor in them having restrictions to access uh, of this or, or that aspect of life. Uh, while uh, it is uh, documented uh, that for those of us uh, who are Black or uh, have other ethnicities, or are of other ethnicities, should, should I say, uh, our ethnicity is a defining factor uh, in our access to opportunities in life. Uh, and Suzanne mentioned the justice system. Uh, one thing that is not often known, uh, for instance, is that uh, Britain proportionally imprisons more black men than the US does. Uh, and if you look at figures, you would see that uh, while black people represent, I think 3% of British population, uh, they represent 12% of the prison population. And when you break it down uh, in age and look at uh, uh, under 18s, uh, we up to a quarter of those in the prison system being of black ethnicity. Uh, so if we project ourselves in a few years uh, uh, in the future, we might then uh, see that proportion even uh, increased. Uh, and so the evidence is there, uh, both anecdotal uh, and emp empirical. Uh, and, and I think it is important to be able to name those uh, as we uh, enter in conversation around racism and the impact of racism on people uh, as they live their lives every day. Well, and so yeah, in, a, in a country like ours, which is still kind of dogged far more than we might think it should be at this point in our history by by a class system which isn't always as easy to sort of be mobile in and move move around and within and all the rest of it uh, almost is, is what you're saying that sometimes you hear people saying yeah but it's just as bad being white working class with this advantage as well you know we we don't have access to some of those privileges but almost what you're saying is yeah but you've got to add another layer of disadvantage on uh, if someone happens to be um, black and, and in that same sort of social category, they, they not only have got the disadvantages and the, the reduced life chances that they might have because of their socioeconomic um, setting, but on top of that, there's almost this kind of additional de facto because they're black, it's going to be even harder on top of it. Is that a part yeah. of what you're saying there? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it, it, it isn't about creating a, a hierarchy of persecution. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that an exercise uh, out of which no one ever wins. I yeah. think exclusion, uh, persecution, uh, uh, discrimination are to be condemned, whatever the context uh, and whoever is at the receiving end of it. Uh, 
But I think, nevertheless, we need to recognize that as societies, we have created uh, structures and systems that systematically uh, exclude uh, a host of our fellow citizens uh, exclusively on the basis of their ethnicity. Uh, and so it wouldn't matter whether I am a black doctor uh, or, or a black uh, person uh, who is unemployed. Uh, I experience with most of uh, our systems and structures uh, is likely to be similar. Uh, what I don't think we might say the same for those of white ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come back to sort of institutional racism and systemic stuff and that in a minute. Just something I'd, I'd like to explore very quickly first. Lots of people say, I'm not racist, um, or perhaps more commonly, I'm not racist, but, and the but almost always gives away the fact that in some sense they probably are. Um, but actually, are we all racist? So Suzanne earlier uh, talked about prejudice. Uh I think all of us carry layers of prejudice uh, uh, informed by the cultures that we've lived in, uh, the education we've received, uh, and a variety of external factors. Um, racism, I think we ought to remember that while it is manifested through behaviors and, and attitudes, uh, is, is also systemic. Uh, and, and therefore, when we're talking about racism, we need to take into account that, that element uh, that is predicated on uh, the advantages uh, of one specific uh, ethnic group or, or, or race category uh, against uh, another. Uh, and so I know some who would argue that uh, racism can only uh, be applied one way uh, and, and not another, while prejudice is universal. But I guess that that could be just a debate of terminology. Uh, and I often wonder whether... The issue ultimately is not to determine whether a person is racist or, or not. Uh, and as a black man living in the white world, uh, ultimately, I'm not interested in people's um, uh, desire to be seen or perceived as being racist or not. What uh, interests me more is whether we are able to start living lives that aren't defined by racism uh, either in its behaviour and attitude or in its systemic uh, uh, expression. I don't think I could add to what Lusa has just said. I'm in, I'm in agreement with him. So taking us into slightly perhaps choppier or more controversial waters now, um, what does it mean uh, to describe the Church of England as being institutionally racist, as I think Justin Welby did earlier this year? I mean, is it? Uh, and if so... Um, how should the church redress this? Well, it, it seems to me that having to ask the question uh, is itself an indication that there is an issue. Uh, if there wasn't an issue in our church with racism, whether uh, through its individual expression or its systemic uh, expression, then we wouldn't be in a position where we would need to ask the question. And and I think for the past 30 years plus, the church uh, has been forthcoming in putting its hand up and uh, confessing to its systemic racism and institutional racism. What we have not been able to do, however, is to uh, create a context, uh, a culture that challenges the narrative of us being an institutionally racist church. Uh, we have not been forthcoming in creating uh, opportunities 
for the emergence uh, and uh, the discernment and the development and the releasing of uh, Black and, and, and other ethnic groups uh, in the service of our church, especially in uh, our governance and leadership structures. Uh, interestingly enough, now for the first time in 25 years, we have a Church of England that doesn't have a single diocesan bishop uh, uh, from the global majority. And that in itself is quite shocking uh, in a context where the church is uh, claiming or wanting to be changing the narrative and being a lot more representative. Uh, and, and we need to do better. We need to create uh, an iconography that uh, speaks of the breadth of God's people uh, we need to be able to see in the pews of our churches, uh, in the pulpit of our churches, uh, in the corridors uh, of Lambeth Palace, a general synod, in our theological edu education, uh, uh, theological uh, institutions, uh, a reflection of the breadth and the diversity of God's people, uh, both in uh, ethnic identity, but also in cultural expressions. Uh, and, and I was struck uh, recently by uh, a quote that uh, that stated, we are changed by what we see just as we are changed when we are seen. Uh, and it seems to me that we are still wrestling with that within the Church of England, that what we see still speaks of whiteness as the normative expression of what it means to be part of the Church of England, uh, and whiteness as normative expression of what it is to uh, belong to the Church of England, both in terms of uh, identity and culture? I would agree with um, what Lisa has just said, and I'd love to perhaps expand a little bit um, to that. As we began this conversation in terms of thinking about, well, what is um, racism and developing an understanding of it's the way in which the collective prejudice of a social group becoming forced within institutions. We have to be mindful of that part of that collective prejudice we're talking about is this notion of cultural superiority. So how, how do we address that within the church, the Church of England, and what does it look like? Lucy's given us some examples of what it looks like. It looks like a homogeneous leadership structure. Um, it also takes the form of cultural superiority in terms of theology. Um, for example, what theology are we drawing on? Where does that theology come from? How does it reflect how people in the global South conceive and understand and experience God? Um, in terms of our ecclesiology, our worship, um, the way in which we are able to express our praise and our worship of God from different cultural tradi traditions, not just that of the West. And I think what we have to be mindful of here is that structures of um, racism as they manifest themselves within organisations are beyond the realm of influence of just one individual. Therefore, it's more than possible that you could increase in terms of leadership, um, BAME representation. 
But will they be able to bring down those structures? Will they be able to dismantle the structures which still exist in terms of that cultural superiority of theology, cultural superiority in terms of ecclesiology and the welcome in terms of who who are we actually serving here? Who who are sitting in the pews? So we need to really broaden um, our approach in terms of dismantling those structures. So we're not just completely um, thinking to ourselves that if we diversify the leadership, we've done a wonderful job, and that's where it ends. Because unfortunately, that is just one aspect of. Um, the institutional uh, discrimination and the institutional racism, which we see manifest within organisations such as the Church of England. So just having more representation at a leadership level could almost just end up with yeah, the, the, the final page of um, George Orwell's Animal Farm, where you look in and suddenly the animals and the, the people sitting in the room are indistinguishable from each other. And kind of visually things have changed, but actually nothing's changed. It, it needs to go deeper than just a kind of a, a representation visually and to uh, and to include much more. Is that, is that a part of what you're saying? I am saying that. Um, let's for a moment perhaps switch context and think about this in a slightly different way. Um, for example, the caste system in India. Um, those um, at the top of the system being part of the Brahmin caste, those at the bottom being the Dalit. It, it may be well possible to um, increase the representation of that top, the top elite, and to move some of the Dalit from the untouchable category to those who um, experience a lot of the, um, the privilege at the top. But how does that actually change the life of those who are actually considered to be the untouchables? Mm-hmm. So we've broadened diversity, but we've left the structures in place, which actually continue to oppress. So I think we need to be um, very mindful of that fact that we have to dismantle, we have to decenter the whiteness as it manifests itself in all of those different domains, not just in terms of leadership. Right. Yeah. And I'm quite interested. I think both of you have mentioned um, in your answer something about theology. And, and just even as you were speaking, I was thinking back to to my theological education. Uh, and once you get past the first few centuries and you kind of move out of the Middle Eastern part of the Roman Empire, certainly once you get post-Augustine, I'm not aware that I really engaged with any theological thinking that wasn't very Western and you know, sort of Eurocentric uh, in terms of where it was coming from, uh, for, for centuries and centuries of theological thought that would have formed part of my theological education. So I I kind of, once you get past Augustine, I wouldn't even know where to go to access some of that stuff. Um, so there's a problem there, isn't there? Well, I think part of the problem is, is that there's an element of cultural appropriation uh, to start with, uh, where we fail to recognise that a voice such as Augustine, for instance, uh, is an African voice. Uh, and and I, I was baffled recently uh, as I was engaging with uh, ordinance. Uh, so tr- uh, people training uh, to become clergy and so doing two or three years of theology where a number of them had not registered the fact that Augustine was an African theologian. Uh, wow. and, and I think that, that that simple truth uh, 
will rev- revolutionize the way in which we teach theology. Uh, and, and often we hear of theology defined as white Western centric, uh, expression of theological thought, uh, often, uh, uh, defined by the thoughts of white men, uh, sometimes German, uh, and often dead, uh, failing to recognize that, uh, actually the value of that theology, uh, is that it expresses a contextual reading and understanding of God. Uh, but then it's elevated to kind of normative status. Uh, and every other theological expressions for different parts of the world are then uh, considered as contextual and therefore uh, defined or measured against what we considered as uh, pure theology. Uh, part of the change, part of the, the shift for me is about uh, transforming the language that we use uh, and how we are referring to uh, theological expressions and recognizing that uh, actually Bultmann, Tillich and, and, and others uh, are contextual theologians in the same way as uh, Leonardo Wolf uh, or James Cohen uh, or James or John Beatty uh, were, uh, and I've realized that I've only mentioned male theologians as well, which is uh, an interesting, <laughs> uh, I, I think, indication of the prevalence of male voices in theological reflection, uh, and. Uh, and, and so for me, th- there is something about uh, recognizing that all our theologies are contextual uh, and therefore all our theologies uh, help us uh, in dialogue, in conversation with each other. They help us uh, create and build a vision of ourselves, of the other and of God uh, that is expansive uh, and and unless we do that, what we will be offering uh, ourselves and each other are narrow vision, narrow expressions uh, of, of our calling to uh, think and speak God in a way that becomes life-giving uh, and, and, and inclusive uh, with a capital I. I I really liked your reference to Mbiti and it reminds me of a quote which I read of his, which I'd love to share Um He stated that we have eaten theology with you. We have drunk theology with you. We have dreamed theology with you. We know you theologically. The question is, do you know us theologically? Would you like to know us theologically? Mm, That's challenging, isn't it? Hmm. Um, I'd love to stay in that space and talk some more about that, but time probably precludes. um, But lots of conversations there worth revisiting. about theology and where we draw our theological influences and so on.